Since 1929, the Monks Investment Trust's mission has been to help investors grow their wealth. We aim to do this today by taking a three-dimensional approach to growth. Cyclical growth, rapid growth, and steady growth. The World Wide Web. Wall Street is in turmoil as stocks crash. The Monks Investment Trust, managed by Bailey Gifford. Capital at risk. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to The Advice Show. I'm Zach, a reporter at New Model Advisor, and welcome to the first monthly roundup of the year. Joining me today is data reporter Alicia Hagopian and chief reporter Nicola Blackburn. Guys, thank you so much for joining me. How have you found the start of the year? Has it been um, a busy entry, entry to 2024? Yeah, su surprisingly busy. I think we were saying earlier, weren't we, that the first two weeks were inevitably a little bit quiet, I think, on the news front. But I'm sure that was coupled with the fact that people were still coming back from the holidays and you know, if companies had news that they wanted to announce, they probably wanted to wait a little bit until until they put it out so that there were more people hearing about it and engaging with it. Um, and then it picked up, I think, as I think our stories will will reflect. Uh, what, what did you guys think? Yeah, I think things have picked up a lot in the last few weeks and there have been some really great interviews and conversations going on uh, on the wealth manager side. I know that there's a regulations roundtable uh, that will be coming out soon. So that's been interesting. And we had a great exclusive interview uh, by our reporter, Victoria Bell, with FNZ CEO Adrian Durham. And that was a really interesting piece where he talks about uh, how he would be thinking about listing FNZ, but unsure where as of yet. Um, and I think she's working on a few more things uh, for that coming out soon. So there's there's loads of great content up ahead. Yeah, there's a there's a, a long read coming out on FNZ. In fact, it will probably be out by the time this podcast is out. Um, really doing a deep dive into the weeds of FNZ as a business and looking at its exponential growth over the past few years. And it's going to be a big story. So definitely have a read of that if you haven't already. Definitely. I mean, we've got loads to get our teeth into. Um, you know, we had the news this morning um, that Aberdeen were faced with £1.5 billion worth of outflows in the second half of 2023. Um, the firm also announced an £150 million cost-cutting program that will result in around 500 redundancies. Um, we'll also be talking a lot in this episode about the latest developments of True Potential with several big stories out this month regarding its 8% offers. Uh, lastly, Nicola had a fantastic story in Hartley Pensions, um, a SIP operator that's entering its 18th month of administration. Um, but we, before we get into all that slightly more serious stuff, um, I just wanted to first mention a story that caught my eye um, when I was preparing for this. Um, so this is the news uh, that an FCA manager has lost their legal battle to work from home. Uh, Elizabeth Wilson, £140,000 a year senior manager, lost her appeal to work from home on a full-time basis. So she took the regulator to a tribunal to allow her to work from home. Um, and she's lost her case. I remember when we had a similar story. Actually, um, I believe it was FNZ who'd sent out an email to their staff demanding that they return to the office. I believe um, it was three days per week they were supposed to be in and a lot of staff were simply not doing it. I remember at the time I asked both of you how you would react if you received that email. So my question to both of you now is, would you take CityWire to court if CityWire demanded, <laughs> if CityWire refused, sorry, to allow you to work from home? It's a good question. Well, I think it depends on how litigious you are as a person. Um, um, as if our employers are listening to this podcast. Exactly. Uh, legally, I have to say no. Uh, but I also do think that, that the FCA story was interesting because, uh, you know, she's a high level manager. And I think that 
there are different rules expected for people at entry level versus people paying being paid over a hundred thousand pounds a year i don't think it's as simple as that but i think that there are different expectations around your workload and your work hours but something else that caught my eye in that story was that the judge i think um basically said something along the lines of that you know being in the office is really important for that non-verbal communication um and things along the line of that and it, it really made me think that how that case went really would be swayed by the individual beliefs of who's who's running the case and and, and the judges because it's such a contentious topic it's such a generational question of whether you should be able to work from home and i really think that if you would ask so many people in this office and you know throughout the uk that you'd get really different responses on whether they think that that non-verbal communication is so important mm. when stacked up against other things like picking your kids up from school or something like that yeah that's a really good point that's a really really interesting point um and you know this employee is was a senior or is a senior manager as well right so that also denotes managing a lot of people um and maybe some would think that it's important to spend a certain amount of days in the office with yeah, those people. i mean so, i mean you would you they would argue um that certainly for younger employees who need to know the basics i mean i don't know if you guys feel the same but when i started at citywide i found it invaluable to be in the office and like mm. sponge and absorbing mm -hmm. information left mm -hmm. right and center alicia to your point um interesting what the judge ruled um was that uh, the office was a better place for rapid discussion and non-verbal communication, um, which again is interesting. But but again, you got to make a point for balance, right? Yeah, um, absolutely. But yeah, I thought that was a fun little story to kick us off. Um, now onto the slightly more serious ones. Um, Alyssa, did you want to talk about um, Aberdeen? I mean, there's been so many developments there over the past year, really. Yeah. So um, Aberdeen have come out this morning with their half-year results think it was uh and we've had some great stories from jeremy gordon on wealth manager and also jack gilbert our editor on new model advisor um so it seems like it's been a very difficult year or half year for aberdeen with 1.5 billion um platform outflows during a period of upgrade where the rap platform is being the elevate platform is being sort of pushed into the rap platform rebranded as advisor os there's been sort of these technical challenges happening since February of last year, I think it was. And advisors are just pulling their funds and not really putting new funds on. But it's not just on the platform side. There's been a lot of larger issues. That's why Stephen Bird is introducing 150 million in annual cost cuts, which is really, really substantial. Annual, the annual cost cuts? Yeah. Wow. Annual okay. cost cuts, yeah. Okay. And exactly. And that's also 500 jobs are set to be lost within that and another another element to that was that the Aberdeen I think had around 700 funds and they originally announced that they were cutting 100 of them but they've actually cut around 300 mm. so I think this is a wider sort of cutting situation that's happening across Aberdeen's diff different arms and I am sure we can all talk about different stories that we've done but over the past year we've all touched on different stories about Aberdeen uh, sort of merging different uh, arms of their business together maybe cutting a few jobs here and there cutting their funds and I think this really speaks to the direction that the business is going more as a whole and I think a story that really popped out to me was in November where the CEO had been reported to have said that he wanted to axe the asset management arm completely 
in favor of their interactive investor, direct-to-consumer offering. It's interesting for a, for such a huge name as Aberdeen that they would want to get rid of such a legacy arm of their business. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if that set speaks more to the direct-to-consumer offering and the strength of that or to some struggles that they've been having in the other arms of business. I wonder what you guys think. Yeah, I yeah, I mean, absolutely. I, and I feel like as well as this being a story of Aberdeen as a business and how it's doing and how it's struggling... I think I think there also there's clearly a bit of strategy behind it, right? And you have to ask the question, okay, if it's going to wh- whatever it was, you know, if if it's thinking about major changes to its investment arm, why that arm of the business? And given the outflows that were reported on this morning, you know, clearly it thinks it has excess funds and it thinks a lot of these aren't um, you know, aren't value for money anymore. And I think that speaks to a wider story we've been seeing in the investment management space of actively managed funds having a really difficult time. And a lot of fund managers, I think, finding it quite difficult to express the value of their funds because we saw last year that passive funds, you know, it was quite a small proportion of active funds that outperformed passive funds. So I wonder if this plays into it a little bit as well. Like Aberdeen has a lot of actively managed funds would be interesting actually to see the proportion of funds that are being cut, you know, which ones are actively managed and which ones are index funds, which ones are are passively managed. And I think to your point, Alicia, about um, interactive investor, that's really interesting, their Mm -hmm. pivot to interactive investor since buying it at the end of like 2021. Um, Because it's, I think it speaks to a trend, a shift and where we are in the modern day in terms of the fact that you know, face-to-face financial planning is difficult on a, on a mass scale. It's difficult. And I think that, you know, direct to, a direct-to-consumer platform, pinning your whole hopes on a direct-to-consumer platform speaks of the times that we're in. Uh, we're seeing the advice guidance boundary review coming out from the FCA um, at some point, which is expected to loosen the boundaries of what is considered advice, um, what more, more platforms mm-hmm. can offer, basically, without straying into that definition of yeah. advice, without it getting messy. That could be an opportunity um, for II. Yeah, and I think it speaks to a wider trend. I mean, we had um, just in the last week, I think, um, Fairstone introduced a, their remote, uh, a remote advice service, Mineral, um, for clients with lower asset classes. Um, I saw, you know, recently as well, Foster De Novo um, introduced a um, remote advice offering as well. With a number of firms going a bit more digital, a bit more remote, I think it's just reflective of the way we are now, particularly with, you know, um, Aberdeen in such a financial position that they're in. Yeah, yeah. I feel like a question I would definitely ask Aberdeen if I could speak to Stephen Bird right now is, like, what is your strategy for your, what's the strategy for your investment management business? What are the funds that you're keeping? And why is Interactive Investor going to be such a way forward for your business in terms of the margins, in terms of the product, um, and how that fits in with where you see demand being, you know? Exactly. And I, I think two things on that is that firstly, I'd be interested to know how Interactive Investor fits in with the rest of the investment mm-hmm. arms of the business mm-hmm. and whether maybe the sort of simplifying of the funds ties into what they have available in the platform or things like that 
Um, I'd be really interested to know that and maybe I can find that out. Because uh, this, I was just going to say, presumably, you know, um, I, I, don't, I have not used Interactive Investor, I have to say, but presumably, you, you know, a lot of the options on there are um, Aberdeen's low-cost, i.e. probably index funds, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, absolutely. Like, it, it's it's a channel for more money to flow into some of those products. So which... Well, the other thing is this reminds me of something else. Is actually a story that you did, I think, Nicola, on Scottish widows cutting a huge amount of mm. That was a while ago. Yeah. Um, it was 180 or something, wasn't it? Yes. So this is even more than that. I mean, nearly twice as much. But something that I'm interested in actually about this is that if you think about it, they had 700 funds, which they've now cut to about 400. Mm. That's huge. Yeah. But is it enough to sort of... that? justify the diversity of having 700 funds Mm. each fund requires its own compliance its own i guess as we were wondering how much of it's active but you're paying the active managers yeah as a different set of teams to have on each individual fund yeah in a way is it a sign of an asset manager doing badly or is it a sign of tidying up shop a bit when things grow too big so yeah maybe shouldn't past judgment on the size of the the number of funds no I, I completely agree and and equally you know the fact that they are speaking so much about interactive investor and um it seems to be doing really well for them i think is also a testament to you're right maybe this just like honing in on core parts of their business model that they see as being really beneficial and um they see as you know attracting the most demand in the in the years to come the other thing that was interesting about that story was that um I was out, sorry, our reporting on this was that Stephen Bird said that a priority of his had to be um, maintaining Aberdeen's relationship with Phoenix, which was their biggest client. And presumably Phoenix is an institutional client. Again, Aberdeen is clearly, you know, putting putting effort towards um, servicing those those enormous clients that, that um, are really important for the business financially. So I think that could also evidence that it's just doing a bit of honing in on core parts of its business, um, which from an institutional perspective is something we've seen with Jupiter, um, something we've seen with Schroders. They they talk about um, having these client groups where they just want to focus in on their biggest institutional and like wealth management clients. Hmm. Um, so I wonder if Aberdeen is seeing an opportunity in that as well. Um, that's really which again could be seen as like a smart move right so let's move on to another big story that NMA have been covering this month Zach you've been covering true potential the story of true potentials eight percent offers Um, and could you actually explain exactly what that eight percent offer is and everything you've been finding out about it (laughs) now we had a few stories on this because there are several different angles one of which is um true potentials direct marketing offer now direct marketing offers are interesting because they are not advice direct offers are non-advised financial promotions um so these are usually used when you know it's a very basic question pension members um are given the option of moving to a new corporate pension scheme so when their employer changes providers so they're receiving advice for a substantial period of time then their advisor moves to true potential um, and the client is then choosing to go with them. Now, they're arguing that that process isn't advice. Um, now, some would say, the critics of this will say that how could it not be advice because it's a trusted advisor. These are IFAs that's been around for a long time with their clients, trusted. Then mm-hmm. the, the advisor is saying, I'm going to true potential. 
And they're saying, how is it the case that the client's not just saying, oh, that seems like trusted advice. The question is whether this strays into regulated advice. Mm -hmm. True Potential say it doesn't. Now, if it does stray into regulated advice, um, and one of our stories reveals that um, the financial ombudsman has said that it does constitute advice, I should point out that there have been other cases where the FOS has said it doesn't. So there's clearly a long way to go on this, um, whether the FOS decides it's advice or not advice. If it is advice, there has to be the question of, well, is that advice suitable? The advisor who's bringing their clients across is receiving a 8% offer from Street Potential. Mm. Um, you know, in one of our cases um, that broke late last year, um, it was a 1.3 million pound loan contingent on clients coming to the platform. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. So yeah, there's a whole host of questions going on. And of course, if the FOS rules more of these cases are advice, then True Potential has got a lot of questions to answer as to whether all of these were suitable mm -hmm. or not. Mm -hmm. If they weren't suitable, you know, it's a massive business and it does deals very, very quickly. Um, so it will could have massive implications mm -hmm. as to how they do business going forward. Definitely, definitely, definitely. I also think that, yeah, you make a good point that the FOS have ruled differently in different cases. And I actually think as of now, whether the FOS decides that this direct marketing offer is advice really depends on in each individual case, how the advisor behaves and translates the offer to their clients and how involved they are. What True Potential wants to sort of keep it separate that the advisor doesn't really have a role in it. It's more the client's relationship with True Potential mm -hmm. as an entity. We were looking into how much True Potential has spent on these 8% offers in the last few years and i mean the numbers are really astonishing by the end of this year by some predictions it could have exceeded one billion the sheer client aum that they're taking on in a way makes that worth it but that has to be contingent on that them taking on that client those client assets and putting it into their hybrid advice service mm -hmm. and their hybrid advice service has a really high revenue margin um let me just see if i can find it um, it, I think the margins here are, are key, right, Alicia? Yeah, exactly. The margins are key because it, there's a net margin of 138 bips. Um, and Which is huge. Which is huge, yeah. And of course, it's very cheap to run, I imagine. Well, I mean, I don't have the numbers right in front of me, but from what we looked at, it's a lot cheaper than other forms of advice or a direct-to-consumer offering even, which is really interesting. Um, and it means that you know, true potential can almost afford these enormous costs. I mean, I, I would struggle to think of another advice firm who is paying that much to acquire new clients, but it's because they can make that back. That's an extreme amount of spending. But I think what's also key is just going back to, you know, whether or not this constitutes advice. You know, true potential say the direct offers are a non-advised process. Advisors only provide information to the client about the fund switch. Um, so that, you know, the clients are sent this direct marketing offer containing an online process to move their investments to the integrated proposition. Um, if they accept the client is on the integrated position. Um, of course, we've seen cases rest on how much communication there was with the advisor and the client during that process. Was the advisor in the room with the client during that process? Mm -hmm. If a client's received advice from an advisor for the past, you know, however many years, and then they are all of a sudden presented with a direct marketing offer with their advisor many would argue that that is that the client is not to know that that's still not advice um is it explicitly explained do true potential of a policy whereby advisors you cannot be in the room when that's happening mm -hmm. or you cannot stray into regulated advice or you must make this abundantly clear to clients 
these are all questions really that could potentially have massive implications um and you know we'll yeah the story as it progresses yeah yeah that's a, a great story guys really really great you recently actually i think it was yesterday published a story about hartley pensions how mm. there are i think over a billion in assets are still locked away mm. i mean how long has it been it is so the administration process of hartley pensions has entered its 18th month and over the past few months there have been conflicting things said about when that process will come to an end so it's been a long time it's like the most important point about why this process is there's something inherently wrong with it and that is because like over 16,000 people's money that their retirement money has been locked away for 18 months so you know the administrators would know who we have tried to contact several times would no doubt say that this process is had to happen as would the FCA who put Hartley in voluntary or or um requested that Hartley enter administration in 2022 um, because of various operational issues, they said. Um, no doubt they would also say that this process had to happen. But at the end of the day, there is something inherently wrong here when people's money has been locked up for that long. Um, I've you know, spoken to one client who um, you know, needs cancer treatment and can't afford it. And of course, there are going to be other clients like that. The point of advisors will know that a lot of um, SIP providers have struggled and, and um, encountered financial difficulties over the years. But, um, you know, Hartley, Hartley's a really unique case because in the years before it went into administration, it acquired the SIP books of about five or six other collapsed pension providers. Um, so all of a sudden it, it um, you know, took over a huge amount of clients' pensions in a very short space of time really and now the whole thing has encountered some serious financial difficulties the fca said there were operational issues and it's taken 18 months for the administrators to try and you know get all its debt sorted out redistribute those funds and and the administrators have said that hartley is going to run out of money um by the end of the month and in that case it will become insolvent and then, uh, you know, th there's a whole lot of kind of charges that clients and things could could face for having their SIPs deregistered. Um, so that's not the outcome that people want. But the whole thing is that... Do you know how long these um, administration procedures usually take? Um, certainly not 18 months. No, I, I'm not sure. Zach, I couldn't give you a definite amount of time. Um, but I've, I've certainly never seen one this long. Um Often what happens is, let's say it's a SIP provider, they enter administration where administrators come in and and um, try and um, you know sort out the company's debts and things. And if they work out that there's not enough money to pay those off or they can't sell the business, then it will become uh, insolvent. It might fail. It might, you know, um, it, yeah, it might um, go into default. Um, but that will, that will um, you know, happen as soon as the administrators can realize that the company can't con continue trading. Um, I mean, you mentioned that as well, um, harrowing personal stories um, from people who've got their money trapped. Mm. Um, I also just wanted to ask, um, you know, you put in the article that, you know, some people believe liquidation is a foregone conclusion, because why wouldn't you after 18 months? Is that a sense you got from speaking to people? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, absolutely. I've, I've seen a lot of uh, commentary from uh, from a lot of the SIP holders and there was just this sense of exhaustion. I mean, to keep funding the 
administrators fees they have to take out a two million pound loan they did just to, just to fund the because because the administrators ran out of money already exactly yeah. so they had to take out a loan um because that exacerbates their problems because the loan will need to be repaid as yeah and that's a whole other can of worms that i don't even know how how they're going to actually i do you know they they have said how they're going to deal with that and it looks all above board but it's also dependent on about five other things happening um the other thing is uh, um, just worth mentioning is that some of the SIP holders have expressed anger at the FCA for, um, you know, or arranging this administration process in the first place for Hartley because they've sort of said, well, why couldn't, you know, we all just take our SIPs on and try and find an alternative operator for them? Um, why instead have we been unable to access our, our SIPs for 18 months? Um, and... We haven't spoken to the FCA about this. I'm not sure they would speak to us about it, um, about the reasons why Hartley had to go into administration. Um, but, you know, it's you can see why SIP holders would feel anger towards the regulator. Um, and again, I think it just raises the question about what is inherently wrong with how we um, deal with these troubled SIP providers. And they're so tightly regulated and they have had a quite a tough um, time from a regulatory perspective. So unfortunately, I think we're going to see more SIP providers in trouble. Um, and I mean, this Hartley situation can't happen again. It really can't. So um, yeah. Yeah. Well, I think that brings this episode to an end. Um, but thank you so much for joining me, both of you. Um, it's been a very busy start to the year and I'm afraid it's probably set to continue like that. <laughs> you've been listening to the advice shows monthly roundup with myself data reporter alicia hagopian and chief reporter nicola blackburn for any questions please feel free to tweet us at new model advisor or email us at nma team at citywire.co.uk thank you so much for listening and we'll see you next week since 1929 the Monks Investment Trust's mission has been to help investors grow their wealth. We aim to do this today by taking a three-dimensional approach to growth. Cyclical growth, rapid growth, and steady growth. The World Wide Web. Wall Street is in turmoil as stocks crash. The Monks Investment Trust, managed by Bailey Gifford. Capital at risk.